today on the Tearsheet Podcast. I think, you know, nonprofits initially when the fintech, uh, you know, sector was booming, had some trepidations and thinking about, you know, whether this would be applicable for their constituents. But, you know, we see more and more nonprofits uh, embracing the fintech model, um, but also then also partnering with for-profit fintech companies to bring their products and services to their uh, constituent base. Welcome to the Tearsheet Podcast. I'm Tearsheet Editor-in-Chief, Zach Miller. During the pandemic, Many for-profit companies and startups created digital tools to help people manage and save their money. Things like getting access to products and services that support their financial health, like financial coaching. And at the same time, underserved and low-income customers, typically left out of traditional banking, are increasingly gaining access to mobile and online technology, creating opportunities for nonprofits to participate in fintech. Sarah Kay, Vice President of Inclusive Solutions at Prudential, believes that nonprofit fintechs provide critical services to underserved communities that have otherwise been marginalized. She joins me on the podcast to talk about the impactful work that's going on in the sector. We discuss how these firms combine revenue sources through enterprise customers in order to grow and scale their businesses without solely relying on philanthropic funding, which can be unreliable. Sarah shares more about her role at Prudential and the work her firm is doing in the space. Sarah Kay is my guest today on the Tearsheet Podcast. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast. My name is Sarah Kay, and I'm a Vice President of Inclusive Solutions here at Prudential Financial. Um, and Prudential is a global financial services firm. Um, and we have really been founded in the principle of equity from our um, starting point when our founder, John Dryden, he created a product that was inaccessible for people from low-income communities, which was burial insurance at the time. And so he really created a social enterprise when he first started the company. And so that ethos of social responsibility still remains within the company. And so the group that I work in, Inclusive Solutions, helps the company drive inclusive economic growth by leveraging our talent, our investments, and the capabilities of our businesses. And we leverage a couple of different resources, which includes philanthropy, corporate contributions, employee engagement opportunities, but also leading the inclusion and diversity um, strategies and approaches within the enterprise. Um, all working to ensure that we are helping everyone achieve financial security, that we're helping to close the financial divide, and really looking at ways where our where profits and social progress are not separate, but working together to benefit you know our shareholders, customers, employees, and communities. Uh, it's a very interesting um, story and also a very interesting role. Um, I'm just curious how the inclusive solutions business uh, interfaces, I guess, with the rest of the business across the enterprise. Yeah, it's a great question. It's a model that I see a lot of companies moving towards where, you know, I think prior, maybe a decade or so ago, you know, inclusive solutions or other people's um, terminology, whether it be corporate social responsibility or inclusion Mm -hmm. and diversity used to be kind of on the side of the business as like a nice thing to do. You need to be a good corporate citizen, but really didn't have much engagement with the rest of the enterprise. And so what we're seeing with our team and especially with other companies as well, too, is that we're becoming more and more embedded in the overall business strategy, the operating model, really thinking about how it can't just be profit for profit's sake, but really thinking about how do you drive social progress? How do you really think about the societal challenges that can have business returns and provide business value at the same time? 
time. And so we work really closely with all of our uh, business partners, whether it be our individual business lines, like we have individual life insurance, our international insurance business, our asset management business, or some of our corporate functions, whether it be human resources or external affairs department, to really make sure that people are thinking about the purpose of why we are in this business and to think about how do we build better consumer insights, how do we customize the products and services, really that we're driving both progress and um, financial returns at the end of the day. Interesting. And, and taking a step back, can you talk a little bit about the work um, that Prudential has done in the nonprofit sector? Sure. So um, the work that I specifically oversee is our strategic philanthropy, what we call our shared value partnerships, which is what we just talked about of embedding the work that we do within our businesses and our employee engagement efforts. And uh, we have a strategy around four pillar areas. One is about making sure that people are connected to high quality skills training programs. We know that people from low income communities often don't either have the financial means or access to high quality skills training programs. So really making sure that that connects to a good job. And we would really think about the ways of incentivizing employers, whether they be small to medium sized businesses or large corporations to provide good benefits for workers. Then we look at where uh, the portfolio of work that's most aligned with Prudential's own products and services of making sure that people from low-income communities have access to responsible financial products that build their wealth and protect their assets. Um, And then we take a localized view. We were founded and we are still headquartered in the city of Newark, New Jersey. And so really thinking about how do we make sure Newark overall is a thriving and vibrant city. So we work very closely with the mayor's office and city agencies to improve public education, public safety, workforce development, building up the small business ecosystem, affordable housing development, really anything that you can think of when you're thinking of a thriving and vibrant city. And then the fourth area that we focus our efforts on is disasters and humanitarian crises. And so especially in those locations where Prudential has a presence globally, we'll support the immediate relief efforts, but then also recovery and redevelopment. So in today's time right now, with everything going on in the world, with a crisis in Afghanistan, the earthquake that just happened in Haiti, and all of those other issue areas that we're looking at, how do we provide immediate support? Can you give some examples of the companies you've worked with in those spaces? Sure. So um, one organization in our uh, inclusive workspace is uh, Social Finance, which is a nonprofit organization that's really been a pioneer in outcomes-based financing models. And so um, outcomes-based financing is really tying success metrics to the investment that you're making up front. So in the workforce development space, oftentimes, particularly when it's public funding, governments will support uh, workforce development organizations to provide the training and they'll provide the funds up front. But there's no, um, you know, there's no consequences if the people that they trained did not actually get a job at the end of the day. So that it was just for training for training's sake. But so what these outcomes-based financing models are doing is that they're tying the investments to say you actually have to make sure that these people are being placed into good jobs. Um, to actually receive the full value of the investment. So whether it's split up in the terms of how much money is given up front or what we've really been working with social finance recently is this terminology called career impact bonds where uh, investors, private investors are putting up upfront money to cover the tuition costs to um, for low-income individuals to participate in some high-quality training programs. And if and well, only if they receive a job at a certain salary rate, do they start paying back that tuition? So it helps to fray a lot of the student loan crisis that we're seeing of really making sure that it's being tied to outcomes and people are actually receiving jobs at the end of the day. So that's one example on the talent side of things. I'll say, you know, another example, just to kind of give you the scope of the work that we do is in our hometown in Newark. 
Uh, we helped launch an organization a couple of years ago called, uh, called the Newark Community Street Team. Um, and that's really working in the public safety space. And that's really looking at how do we make sure that we're creating safe passageways that you know communities are not um, being overridden with violence and crime. And so what the Newark Community Street Team does is they take people who have actually been recently released from prison or community members from that local neighborhood to help them essentially police the neighborhood to really say like, we're gonna be here, especially when a crime is committed. They go immediately to um, ERs to make sure that the person will not retaliate against a crime that was committed against them. They help make sure that students have safe passageways from their homes to their schools. And they've done so much good work that last year, I don't know if you saw the national news that no police officer in the city of Newark fired their um, gun. And during all of the protests during Black Lives Matters, there was no violence uh, during those times uh, in Newark. And that was a result of a lot of the work that the Newark Community Street team had done in building trust with the community and the police officers on the ground. So that kind of gives you a sample of how wide ranging our support is, but also really looking deep into some of these organizations. And I, I held off on saying anything about the organizations we support in the financial health space, because I know we're going to go deeper into that. Yeah, exactly. That's a great segue into the next part of the conversation. So why has Prudential been interested in partnering with, um, I guess, fintechs that focus on the nonprofit center, uh, profit uh, sector and um, particularly financial health? Yeah, you know, it's been, um, I think this last year has really laid bare the vulnerabilities and the fragility of the um, public and just individual workers here in this country. So we know 67% of employees report being financially stressed while they're working. Wow. You know, close to 40% of Americans don't have $400 in emergency savings. And 60% don't have $600 in emergency savings. So most people in this country are one crisis or one uh, you know, accident away from being in financial crisis. And so the reason why we're so focused in this space is that you know, so many individuals require support, services, and solutions that are meeting those needs that have been traditionally excluded from products that have been designed to build wealth in larger institutions. And so the reason why specifically, you know, the nonprofit fintech space, I think a lot of people think that could be a little bit of an oxymoron. Um, but we have really found over the last five years, we made an intentional effort to really work with the nonprofit organizations to think about how they can change, shift some of their services and products and solutions in a digital platform. And that was uh, incredibly, in hindsight, thinking about it, you know, this was something that we had not pre-planned, but mm -hmm. come the COVID-19 pandemic, they were easily able to switch so many of their services because they had already been working on their digital platform. So a couple of examples that I would provide in our portfolio is that we work with an organization called Saver Life, and they uh, utilize gamified saving challenges and digital financial tools to help people save. Because one of the top financial concerns we always hear about is the lack of emergency savings. And uh, you know, we through the research that Saver Life and others have done, we know that just having $250 to $500 make people less likely to fall into debt. And so Saver Life uses this digital platform that anybody can access online or as a on their mobile phone to start uh, saving and they get incentivized through these prize link saving programs. And they have become so successful that many companies now they're partnering with Intuit, Kentucky Fried Chicken, Levi's, credit unions, nonprofits to provide this type of savings program to their employees. 
another example that I'll give is that um, Neighborhood Trust Financial Partners has been a longtime partner of ours as well, too. And so they initially started in the city of New York City, and they provide live financial coaching to individuals. And it was mm. one-to-one in person. Um, and so we work with them to create a tech-enabled platform called Trust Plus that plays uh, that provides workplace-based financial coaching, but virtually. So over the phone, online, on your mobile, they help individuals create their financial plans to help reduce debt, build savings, pursue goals like higher education or home ownership. And they have been able to triple, quadruple the number of people they're serving now. And they're not now only serving just people in New York City, but across the country. They're now in about 46 states. They work with large uh, employers like Cigna, but also, you know, benefit platforms like the National Domestic Workers Alliance. They also partner with fintech companies to provide financial coaching with emergency savings. So that's another example. And then the last example that I'll give you is um, another organization called MoneyThink. And what they're really looking at is how do we help with the student loan crisis? So we know that less than 5% of four-year colleges are considered affordable for low-income students, and 70% of college dropouts leave school because of financial concerns. And so what MoneyThink has done is they created a digital uh, tool called DecideEd, and it's basically an online or mobile app um, a product that students can go in and once they get accepted to colleges, they can upload their acceptance letters and their financial aid packages because we know that oftentimes they're quite confusing. They have a lot of information and you can't necessarily decipher them because colleges and financial aid uh, service providers provide different information. And so what Decide Ed does is actually take all of that information for the student and they let them know exactly how much it will cost you over the four years to attend that college. They'll also take information about your household income and say, here are your best affordable matches, um, because we know that that's a big decision for students uh, to better understand their own financial circumstances and get a sense of, you know, which colleges are best meeting their needs around that area. And so um, Money Think is another organization that we've helped support in thinking about what are some of the digital tools that they can leverage. So, Sarah, you've really been... um... You have a lot of experience up front and, and, and connected to, 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 fintech, to nonprofits embracing a fintech model. It's not something we've covered a whole lot at Tearsheet, but it's definitely something that's uh, emerging more on, on our radar screen. How do you think that um, nonprofits can effectively embrace a fintech model? And I, I'm curious also, given your perspective and, and history in the space, if you think um, particularly this is um, useful for helping to close the racial wealth gap. Definitely. I think, you know, nonprofits initially when the fintech, uh, you know, sector was booming, had some trepidations and thinking about, you know, whether this would be applicable for their constituents. But, you know, we see more and more nonprofits uh, embracing the fintech model, um, but also then also partnering with for profit fintech companies to bring their products and services to their uh, constituent base. And so for a couple of reasons, I think it's a it's a great match, which is there's sustainability and scale with fintech models, right? You, you know, I gave the example of the Neighborhood Trust for Financial Partners, where they were only able to serve people in New York City when they were doing live coaching. Um, but because they were able to switch to this digital platform, now they're serving over 100,000 people across the country. And so that scale, you just see that exponential rise um, when they're embracing the digital platform and how do you think about services in that side. But then also the sustainability of things. I think oftentimes, you know, there is um, 
what I think is a misconception that nonprofits should only be providing services and never returning a profit in any way, shape or form. And, you know, we firmly believe that nonprofits should be thinking about program revenue streams, social Mm -hmm. enterprises within their model, because they're not, you know, they're not making the profit to grow as an organization, but they're using the profit to then reinvest in the programs and services to better meet the needs of their constituent base. And so a lot of times when these fintech um, models have been embraced by these um, organizations, they've been able to bring in additional revenue stream, grow their uh, business model or products or services to be able to serve more people. Um, And then in terms of closing the racial wealth gap, I mean, we know that mainstream financial institutions are not necessarily well equipped to meet the the financial challenges Mm -hmm. from people from low to moderate income levels. I think also that Uh, People oftentimes think that low to moderate income individuals are a monolith. And we know that, you know, there are quite big differences, whether you're looking at it from a racial ethnic demographic, a gender lens, or if you're looking at it from just a a pure life um, events where, you know, a young mother is going to have very different challenges than an elderly individual who's been under underemployed for quite some time. And so uh, the ability for nonprofits to be really close to their constituent base, I think that's um, something that we, we fully believe that, uh, you know, a nonprofit, if they are successful, has the trust and credibility in their communities, whereas sometimes, uh, you know, communities can be a little bit, um, you know, cautious about fintech companies or new startup models. And so how do you make sure that these two sectors are working together, whether to create products together or really thinking about the solution in a more holistic manner? Totally. I really, I really, you know, it's, it's enlightening to me, sort of this intersection between nonprofits and fintechs. Uh, I'm kind of curious also what challenges shifting to a fintech model presents for nonprofits, if, if there are any. And you, you've given a few examples of, um, of firms that have found a way to scale nationally. Um, what, are, what are those opportunities to grow and scale? Yeah, I would say, you know, to answer your first question about what are some of the challenges, digital infrastructure is a major barrier for nonprofits to really embrace that fintech model, Um, you know, oftentimes because nonprofit organizations are so much on the ground, really working with each constituent one-on-one, they haven't had the time or the capacity to build up a digital infrastructure because you can't just you can't just develop a product and say it's great and people will utilize it. There's so much that goes behind the scenes of maintaining it, ensuring that it's being distributed. And so that's been um, one of the major barriers of more nonprofits embracing the FinTech model. I think there are also digital barriers. So nonprofits, you know, working in low-income communities, not everybody has access to broadband, not everybody has access to mobile phones. And so how do you um, understand what are your constituents' needs? And even if you build a really successful digital product, are you actually going to be able to have people accessing that is a big question. Um, And I think in general, there's, you know, still some unawareness about the field, regulatory issues, and then ultimately, you know, concern around security and privacy and how do you safeguard the trust that these nonprofit organizations have earned with their constituents. You know, we hear all about data leaks and all of that kind of stuff around cybersecurity. And so I think, you know, uh, people sometimes are cautious about entering into, um, you know, a, a fintech type of product or solution. But on the flip side of that, you know, the opportunities to grow and scale is is 
pretty, you know, limitless in the sense of if you're able to, you know, build the right infrastructure, if you're able to make sure that your communities have access to these digital tools, the ability to gather data, the ability to provide really customized solutions when you're looking at data analytics, instead of also just creating monolith products that, you know, service just, you know, anybody, it can really customize the needs. And so I think there are so many opportunities to make sure that your products are thought about in a really um, customized way with the consumer at the heart of it. So in the, in the remaining time we have, Sarah, <clears throat> I'm curious uh, to come back to the idea of financial security and financial wellness. Um, I'm curious if you have more examples of how nonprofit fintechs are helping to democratize, democratize financial security and wellness. There are so many ways that nonprofit organizations are doing that. I think the core of what they do is really looking at how do you uh, make sure that, you know, policies and financial institutions that have historically excluded people of color um, are creating pathways uh, to wealth building opportunities. And we know that, you know, these type of inequities compound with generations and, you know, the lack of access to home ownership and retirement savings. So these nonprofit organizations, whether they're embedding these fintech models or working with fintechs to bring these types of products and solutions is democratizing that in ways that we haven't seen before. You know, previously you could only get a bank account at large financial institutions. And now we have all these digital uh, payment apps and ways for people to save and also build up their credit. And those are things that were oftentimes out of reach for so many people. And so I think what these nonprofit FinTech models are really looking at are what have been systemic barriers that had limited ability to service people of color or community, low-income communities. And how do we make sure that they're, you know, building up their assets so that it is moving from one generation to the next? And I think nonprofit fintech models have a unique space in that where they are so close to their constituent base. And, you know, we support another organization called the Financial Health Network, which has a fintech accelerator incubator arm called the Financial Solutions Lab. And one of the programs that they actually um, piloted a couple of years ago is the nonprofit fintech exchange. And that's taking uh, fintech, for-profit fintech organizations to work with nonprofit organizations, whether it's because the nonprofit is building up their own fintech model or they're helping that fintech uh, reach an increased customer base through their relationships that they have. And I think that's so incredibly important because you know, oftentimes I always say this because we oh, we also have an impact investment arm, which is that for-profits and nonprofits are often working towards the same goal, but they never talk to each other. And so they're working on these parallel paths. So how do we bring the two sectors together to really make sure that we are uh, solving this great need that's out there? Sarah, it was a fascinating conversation. Thanks for joining us on the Tearsheet Podcast today. Thank you so much for having me.